0: Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we're recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present and emerging, always was, always will be Aboriginal land.
1: Hey, I'm Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. In this episode, I speak with former Supercars driver, Renee Gracie. I went
2: straight from go-karts to a Porsche.
1: (laughs) I first met Renee around 10 years ago when I was working at the Bathurst 1000 and did a story about this new up-and-coming female driver racing in the Porsche Carrera Cup Series. We stayed in contact and since then I've followed Renee's career with interest and have done numerous stories on her and even held my nerve as she took me for a hot lap around Queensland Raceway in a V8. As all this was happening, Renee was coming to terms with a traumatic incident when her mum suffered a brain aneurysm and became physically and mentally impaired. Renee found her mum, resuscitated and saved her life. Not long afterwards, Renee became the first full-time female driver in 14 years and competed in the great race, the Bathurst 1000, for two years. But it took a toll. Renee was brutally trolled with death threats and misogyny, which, in the end, saw her quit the sport she once loved. It's been well publicised that Renee is now one of Australia's most popular figures on OnlyFans, earning incredible money. We'll have an interesting discussion about the sexualisation of women in sport and the empowerment of her work, as well as the dangers of the misrepresented messages he can send. There's more to Renee Gracie than OnlyFans, This is a strong and resilient woman who has always liked to do things her way.
2: Uh, Little Renee Gracie was a bit of a handful from what I've been told. (laughs) The times that I can't remember, I was always a fair bit of trouble straight off the bat. I think as a a young girl, I was always keeping my parents' hands full, that's for sure. And then (laughs) when I was a little bit older, I was always very adventurous, outdoorsy. My dad was always trying to keep up with me and where I was going. I loved to play sports and a lot of after school sports. I was always super busy just doing everything I could possibly get my hands on pretty much. And yeah, I think that natural outdoorsy sort of lifestyle playing lots of sports sort of got me to be quite competitive in nature and mm-hmm. yeah started playing lots of sports competitively not long after that and yeah just really found a love for being competitive and doing all sorts of things and yeah not long after that my journey sort of started into to go-karting and that sort of yeah where everything began and seriously began for me when I was about 12 or 13 basically
0: um what kind of sports were you into growing up?
2: I did everything in school, everything I could po- was allowed to do and physically allowed to do <laughs> anything that lined up too because a lot of sports clashed at my school. So, mm. for example, you know I, I had to play netball, but I couldn't play softball because it was on training was on the same afternoon. But sure. I did everything from um, swimming, athletics. Um, I did volleyball, uh, softball I tried for a little bit, netball I did competitively and, and representing Queensland for, for netball. So that was like my most serious sport. Wow, cool. I did AFL, um, just everything I could get my hands on, water polo was something that I was doing very seriously at the very end. Um, yeah, just pretty much anything my school had to offer, I gave it a go and anything that I was good at, I stuck to. <laughs>
0: um, and like, where did you grow up? Like an outdoorsy kind of place?
2: Yeah, well, I've always grown up in sort of uh, south of Brisbane is sort of the area that I grew up in, south Brisbane. So I've always had backyards and I've got mm. dogs from, and pets from a young age. We're so going out walking and going to the beach and taking them to the beach and stuff like that. My mum would take us camping every school holiday. So we're just very lucky. We would always go to Sunshine Coast, we'd go down to Byron and we'd just always get to be outside near the beach, mm. near the water, near waterfalls, near lakes, near rivers and just play around and be kids basically.
0: Did you have siblings? Like I've known you for a while, but I don't think I've ever asked if you had siblings.
2: Yeah, I do have an older sister. Uh, we are nothing. Yeah, really. <laughs> we are nothing alike whatsoever. Is well, that right? Yeah, what she do. I'm the black sheep of the family. So my sister was very smart, <laughs> very academic. So she was very good at school. She didn't play much sport. She was in choir and mathematics classes and all that sort of stuff. Um right. And she played a lot of music. So she was very into her music and saxophone, piano, clarinet, and stuff like that. Um, and then she got into being a PT and opened up a gym with my dad not too long ago. So she's always
0: been
2: more academic the she I'm the black sheep she's just everything a parent (laughs) would hope for is her and then I'm left of (laughs) field
0: I would not call you the black sheep though you've been incredibly successful and you've broken through a lot of barriers which we're going to get to on this on this podcast but I would definitely not call you the black sheep Renee um Let's talk about motor racing. You mentioned you got into it through go-karts, 11 12, did you say? And like what were you interested in motor racing growing up? Did you watch it or and what made you get into go-karts?
2: So yeah, I wasn't interested in, in motorsport at all. Um obviously sport I was. My dad was very big into AFL and um rugby, cricket and all that sort of stuff. So I grew mm. up watching that but never motorsport. My dad was never really a motorsport mm. kind of guy. No one in my family was. Everyone loves their cars and had cars. My dad obviously, you know, he had a few nice cars in his time and always used to show them to me, but nothing too serious. Um it wasn't until we were on a family holiday at Hamilton Island where I think it was our last day there and I think it had rained a day or two before and we had a few days where we did not do many activities. Um and so mum mm-hmm. and dad were like, "Alright, well it's been raining, like we we you guys are desperate to go do something. What do you want to do?" My sister wanted to go paragliding. Um and I hate heights, so I said absolutely not, I'm not doing that. And then dad said, "Well let's just go for a walk walk around the island and see see what there is and we'll book an activity or we'll do something so yeah we went for a little walk around the island and sure enough we saw a go-karting pamphlet at the track there and one thing led to another and we went there and I was just did lap after lap and I was hooked came back from the holiday and I was like to dad one weekend we're still on school holidays and I said to dad I was like we need to go go-karting we need to find a go-kart and you need to go go-karting and yeah I went to Kingston Park Raceway and it was just yeah the rest was history it was just an obsession from there.
0: How interesting that you went to Hamilton Island. That was the last place I thought you would get into go-karting on Hamilton Island out of <laughs> yeah. everything that used to do mm-hmm. on oh, Hamilton Island. I thought you were going to be in the Central West and you were about Bathurst or something, but nope,
2: yeah. Hamilton
0: Island mm-hmm. it was. Um, so you got into it then. What Were there are any other females in it at all, any other young girls, and how did the boys kind of respond to you rocking up?
2: Yeah, so when I first originally got my actual first ever go kart, so a competitive go kart to go racing in, um, we were there was a track up at the Gold Coast that was local to us, and we went there. And I remember the first couple of race weekends we went to just go watch. I wasn't racing, and mm. um, yeah, there was there was it was a family orientated sport. Of course, naturally, a lot of mums had their sons racing, and there was lots mm. of kids around my age and lots of girls around, lots of mums volunteering in the canteen. So it wasn't like I was the only girl, but it was definitely mm. you could see on track that there was no girls Um, Mm. but it didn't really bother me because like I said it was a family orientated sport there was lots of young girls young kids around kids my age it didn't really Mm. scare me or didn't really make me think that it was I never thought, oh, God, I'm doing something that's not usual here because for me it just felt like another fun thing to do on weekends that I was already Mm. doing, you know. So it wasn't until I actually got a little bit older, being quite young, 11, 12 years old, 13, quite naive to everything. I obviously was doing something that I loved and I didn't really care (laughs) about anything else in the whole entire world except Mm -hmm. go-karting. And it wasn't until I started to get 16, 17 is when I really started to, to notice that I've been doing this for so long. I'm still the only girl people and boys especially tend to get a little bit meaner when they get a little bit older as well. So mm. when I'm 13, 14, you know, we're playing handball. When you're beating them too? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> when we're younger, we're playing handball and, we're you know, we're handballing an AFL ball around and we're kicking soccer balls and everyone's friendly and then all of a sudden everyone matures a little bit and everyone gets mm. a little bit older and then all of a sudden, you know, boys start being mean to you and picking on you and all that sort of mm. stuff. And that's when I probably really started to notice that what I was, was doing wasn't overly normal. And I think the longer mm. I stuck to it, and the more places I went, the, the more I realised that there really wasn't many girls at all.
0: Mm. How did the boys react? You said they were getting mean. Was it because they were, you were beating them, because you were good? How did they respond to you Not only, sticking at this, enjoying it, and then being good at it?
2: I feel like it was definitely one or the other. So I either had guys that were my mates, no matter what. Some I'm still friends with to this day, all these years later. So I had people who supported me, were, were with me no matter what happened. They didn't care if I was a girl. They didn't care if I beat them. They didn't care if I lost. It did nothing mattered. I was just a mate, a friend good at go-karting and we're all doing it together and it was all enjoyable and then I had obviously the other side where it was people just couldn't accept it there was boys out there and their dads especially who just couldn't come to the terms that there was a girl in front of their son or there was a Mm. girl beating them lots of boys going you know I couldn't couldn't bear to tell my dad that I got beaten by a girl and all those Mm. sorts of things so it was really one or the other but I was very lucky to still have lots of friends and lots of respect from people as well purely because I had done it for so long and I was so good at it Um, but Mm. naturally yeah there was a lot of a lot of hate a lot of of negativity Mm. really tough on the track too because go-karting while there are rules you know we're all Mm. young kids going racing so if you bump into someone and you just turn around and go, oh, sorry, it was an accident. When I full mm. well knew, obviously, it was because I was a girl and they didn't want me to be in front of them. So mm. it was very hard to to police that and I think a lot of the stewards and sure. stuff obviously were more on my side and can see that sort of stuff happening. So I was quite lucky mm. to have protections in some areas but I did obviously get a lot of um, pushes and shoves and and rubs when I was on the track in comparison to other people, that's for sure.
0: How did you deal with that? Was it your parents acknowledge that and and help you deal with that or are you just naturally quite strong and sure of yourself that you didn't care
2: no I definitely cared (laughs) yeah I've grown into not caring now but obviously being young and and not really grasping or completely understanding how someone just cares so much if I beat them or not and how come they care so much about me versus the boy next to them sort of thing so Mm. I did care a lot and and one thing that I um always used to say, and I think my dad told me one day because I had a massive accident and it was with a kid who I'd had trouble with for years, years and years, Mm. this kid kept taking me out and um, my dad always used to tell me, don't get mad, get even, so And Dad's like getting even doesn't necessarily mean taking them out on the track. Getting even Mm. is, you know, bettering them in the next race without even touching them because they've taken you out to beat you but if you pass them properly, you've actually beaten them off skill and merit and that's getting even. Mm. So one thing Dad would always say to me is don't get mad, get even. So I think that Mm. definitely helped with a lot of anger issues that I had at the time, (laughs) that's for sure, because I would tell myself that pretty much every race weekend.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Now we know how Renee Gracie became so. So good. Um, Things escalated pretty quickly for you, didn't they? From when you started, you know, racing go-karts and something like five years later, you're behind the wheel of an actual racing car.
2: Yeah, it, it moved very quickly. When I started go-karting, I was so obsessed with it and I and I just was 24-7 all about go-karting. It was my life. Um, mm. I think being lucky enough to get my dad behind me to realise that and support me, he would take me out of school on a Thursday if it was raining so I could go practice in the wet and all of a sudden I was getting so much track time and, and I was getting so much experience that naturally when I started racing I was doing more tracks, I was travelling all over Australia, I was being seen by more people. So from when I was doing it just for a bit of fun to when I was actually taking it seriously and being competitive it sort of just blew up from there so it was something that I you know was doing for fun maybe for the first two two years and then the last three were, were super competitive and I was doing really well I think the last two years I was placed you know, fourth in Australia two years in a row so Wow. From there, it obviously naturally got a lot of attention from people who are in motorsport, looking at young kids coming through. And mm. I think I was just lucky enough being, you know, one of the first sort of young females to, to be doing mm. so well consistently over the years. It just, the stars aligned and I've got a manager in place and a, and it mm-hmm. just happened that, you know, Fujitsu at the time were, were sponsoring young kids in go-karting, which I was one of, and mm. they saw an opportunity and we all took it. And, yeah, I went straight from go-karts to a Porsche.
0: <laughs> I love that. So how old are you when you're driving around? a racetrack in a Porsche or driving your first Porsche? Let's just put it that way. I
2: was 17, so I didn't even, I had only just got (laughs) been on my red P's or whatever the first P was. I only just got my P's when I was in Porsche.
0: (laughs) What are you thinking at that stage about, you know, obviously now you're like, okay, this could happen. I could be a racing driver.
2: Yeah, I think it happened so quickly. I didn't really have time to think. (laughs) From the time Mm. I got the Porsche deal, I think it was just after Christmas between the new year and that that period of time where everything sort of got locked in and I think that March Mm. or April I was at Clipsal in Adelaide in a Porsche. So, Mm. And then obviously that year then I had a whole season ahead of me, all the publicity, everything. The whole year just happened. It was just done and dusted so quickly and Mm. my feet didn't even touch the ground, which I look at and it's one of the things that I think of all the time that I'm so glad it happened like that. I'm so glad it happened so quickly because I didn't have a choice I couldn't stop and think about mm. anything you know I was just propelled into yeah. a situation and I just had to I just had to toughen up and get through it and mm. do it and I'm very glad that it happened that way because it, it's taught me a lot of lessons.
0: Is that when we first met in 2013? Yes yeah. When I did a story for you on you um, for Channel 7 at Bathurst mm-hmm. and that was the first time I think we'd met and I'd found out about this female racing driver I hadn't had that much attention but it was all kind of definitely happening at at that stage, yeah. um, was it the next year you went into the Dunlop series?
2: No, so I did another year in Porsche. So I did two years mm-hmm. in Porsche and then the following year I was in the development series, yes.
0: Yeah, which was a big deal because that meant, didn't it, that you became the first full-time racing car driver in Australia since Leanne Tanda? Mm-hmm. is that correct? Which was about 14, second...
2: 14 or 15 years, I think it was at that time, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. How are you feeling about because you were getting a lot more attention and everything like that. How are you feeling? How did you deal with all that extra attention at that stage?
2: I think I was lucky enough that in Porsche I was the first full-time Porsche female Carrera Cup driver in Australia ever and I think Mm -hmm. at the time that I raced Porsche I was the only female racing car driver in any of the Porsche categories so Mm -hmm. Europe, Asia, America and Australia um, Mm -hmm. I was the only female so I feel like I had already got that attention I was already used to it in go kart. so when I had moved to development Mm -hmm. series I'm just it was just what I was used to. Um, unfortunate to say, obviously, because it's a shame that there's no other females that are sort of in there and, and, and having a go, yeah. um, but I was definitely used to it. So for me, it was sort of just another box ticks, but I didn't try to think about it too much. Obviously, you know, everyone makes a big deal about it, and for me it was a big deal, but I had much bigger fish to fry and actually try and be competitive mm. and race a car and not worry about mm. being a female.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you come up against any sexism at that stage? Because it is such a male-dominated industry and especially back then it was
2: mm, oh yeah all like all the time and when mm. i was getting older obviously now i'm you know 18 19 20 21 those were the hardest years because now it wasn't mm. it wasn't people sort of saying it. i feel like when i was younger people were a little bit nicer about it as in they'd say oh you know you know you're, you're lucky you've got a dad who wants to support a young female but you know this is you know like just stick to go-karting and stuff like that they would just be sort mm-hmm. of nice about it but definitely when I got older people were a lot more savage and then obviously I got a lot of hate online so it's not just people that I'm really I'm racing anymore it's not just my competitors it's now obviously people who are seeing me on tv and people who are seeing me on social mm-hmm. media yeah. are also yeah. having a say so yeah it yeah. was um it was what kind of
1: stuff what was the
0: like what was the worst stuff
2: oh the worst or the stuff
0: that Really hit home. That would surprise people.
2: The worst ones I've had death threats. So you know, you just people going, you should just go jump off a bridge because you'll never win a race. You're wasting your time. Stuff like that. Oh. So that was definitely at that stage. I,
0: Eighteen, nineteen. At least.
2: Yeah, yeah. 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 <gasps> Yeah, so yeah. at that stage I was actually managing my social medias and um, I was getting a lot of messages online, really nasty stuff, and my manager had access to my social medias and my passwords and stuff, and he mm. started to see this stuff rolling in and then I actually got kicked off all my social medias because of it because it was getting really, really tough. Yeah, really Jesus, tough. Jesus, so. really? And then the the other one that all I can remember is when I was at Bathurst when I did my first over 1,000 is people would boo me and throw like full beer cans at me. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you joking? No, no. So people would be walking and people would be up on top of the balconies and they'd be like, boo, and like throw beer cans at me. Oh, gosh. And then they were full so they would break on the ground and crack and explode, of course. So that was always very frustrating, yeah.
0: And this is the industry that, you know, had grid girls walking around at that stage. Mm-hmm. So yeah. involvement for females actually being driving, then you've got a problem with it. But yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Go figure.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that um, because y- – it was Leanne Tanner. That was the first female as well, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, in that ever competed in at Bathurst, mm-hmm. and then you and Silvana, uh, Simona Di Silvestro, um, then became a team mm-hmm. and competed at Bathurst. It was a big deal. Like yeah. I was so proud. It was such a great moment. I thought, and you two were such. So such great women, and I really admired you. I did stories on you and came out. We even did a hot lap as well. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. I had to take a few quells beforehand in <laughs> case I got sick, but, um, but I love that hot lap that, that we did. But um, how did you feel knowing that you had the weight of, of Bathurst being the, such an iconic race and also such a long time since we'd seen a female team or a female driver in the, in the great race?
2: I think as sad as it sounds and in the way that I approached it, just me personally, is because I think a lot of people didn't expect us to do anything. A lot of people were saying we wouldn't even qualify for the race, so you've got to be within mm. four seconds of the, the lap time set on the day. And, mm. you know, I've never not been four seconds behind a, a, a lap time in my life. And yeah. Maybe if I had a wheel hanging off or I hit a wall or something, but not actually on yeah. track being competitive, And a lot of people all of a sudden were like, they won't even make the lap record. And it's like, mm. well... I made that last year when I raced, um, you know, in development series, the first time I've ever raced a V8 supercar around, you know, here I was well and truly within the four seconds. So I don't know why people yeah. would say. I feel like we were set up to just no one thought we were going to succeed. All we had to do was just get there and finish and you know Mm. people were going to be shocked regardless obviously that wasn't our goal but I knew the standards when the bar was set pretty low (laughs) that we didn't really have much to lose other than to just give it our best because worst case we crash and everyone thought we were going to crash anyway worst case we don't finish everyone thought we weren't going to finish anyway so what have we got to lose you know so yeah for me I didn't really feel like there was pressure at all because I just knew if we finished and if we placed we would be better than what anyone thought we were going to do.
0: Did you ever feel, and we've spoken to athletes on the show about it before, that it wasn't just your team, you weren't just Simona and Renee, but that you were actually driving for women? Because if you did crash, if you did make a simple mistake, you know, people would put it down to if you were male, they would say, oh, well, you know, that stuff happens or a simple mistake or it's just the conditions at the time. But if it happens to you girls, it was always not going to be just a simple mistake it was going to be because you're a female driver
2: yeah 100 percent. and i faced that my whole career in in motorsport even mechanical mistakes people would blame on me and be like oh it's because you're a girl and you don't know what you're doing It's like I have Mm. nothing to do with how the tyres bolted onto my car, FYI. I just drive the car. And people would always leave comments like that and they would always come back to us because you don't know what you're doing and you didn't do this and you didn't do that. Even jobs that weren't related to me, even just actual fluke mistakes, racing incidents, Mm. things that happen, it was always drawn back to me. So, of course, that was always going to be, and always is, and still will be for any female. It's always mm. just the natural excuse for a male to pull out when someone's doing well at something. And if the second you mm. show a mistake or make a mistake or show points of weaknesses, even when I showed used to show emotion or get upset, people would be like, "Oh, it's because you're a female. You can't control your emotions. You can't win." Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was just a constant, constant thing, unfortunately, and for, mm. forever will be.
0: Mm. How did Simona deal with that? same kind of pressure did she get the same level of of trolling and and everything because obviously she she was an IndyCar driver she'd tested um, Formula 1s over in in Europe as well and came back over to Australia and she ended up competing in the V8 Supercars series but you know for her coming in at this very new stage and competing in Bathurst with you did she experience that same level of trolling and, and aggression online?
2: Yeah, there was definitely trolling. It was it was interesting because I feel like there was a few different points of trolls. There was people who just purely didn't like me. There was pure, people who purely didn't like Simona because, you know, she raced IndyCar and she might have had one bad result or, you know, she had an accident where her car was on fire and people blamed mm. that on her and just didn't like her. And people maybe liked me because I was Australian and she wasn't an Australian and they didn't know who she was so they didn't like her. So we had people sort of split in the middle. Oh, but we also okay. had people who supported both of us as well and just loved the fact that, you know, both of us were here and a lot of people who learned about Simona and learned to love her and obviously her future to be in supercars, mm. they obviously became a fan of her. But then we also did have a lot of people who didn't like both of us. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. were just we, the
0: fact that you're female. Yeah, in, in, and we were there. And in sport. Yeah, exactly. Mm.
2: So we, we had a bit of everything. We had people who loved me, hated her. People who loved her hated me. People who hated both of us. People who loved both of us. So it was a very... Um, interesting thing to to see happening a lot of people at signing Mm. sessions for example some people would walk up to her and not even get a signature from me they would just get a signature from her so and a lot of people would only want me to sign a shirt or sign merchandise and they wouldn't get her to sign it so it was it was very a very interesting dynamic and yeah it's sad that it has to happen and it's sad that it's um you know something that we have Mm. to deal with but it's an unfortunate reality yeah
0: And I'm glad that we're talking about it because the more we talk about it and people know about it, the more we can call it out and and try to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. People are very brave online. They're very brave behind their keyboards, but not so brave when they see you face to face. Mm -hmm. Was it the same for you? What was it like when you actually walked around Bathurst when you entered that arena for the first time and you saw people? Were there people that obviously throwing beers, you said that before, but that was, you know, Essentially from a distance, but did people ever say anything to your face or they just? super brave behind the keyboard
2: they're super brave behind the keyboard yeah so I've had a Mm. few instances of course like the beer canting and people booing and and people sort of I can see people talking and whispering under their breath and laughing and stuff like that but they would never really come up to say anything um and most of the time like if I ever heard someone say anything I would like turn around and stop and say something because that's just how Mm. I am um and I think when people there've been a few instances where that had happened from other competitors and and other people where people had got wind that I would stand up for myself um people generally Mm. After that, they sort of backed off and knew that it wasn't worth getting in the argument (laughs) and and Mm. worth me fighting them over it. So it was obviously Bathurst was such a huge weekend. Those small minor instances were such a small percentage of all the amazingness that went on and the support. You know, Mm. I'll never forget when we did the um, the signing session, our first ever signing session. We sit outside for an hour, um, Mm -hmm. table and chair in the direct sunlight, and you know at Bathurst in October. And it's, you know, a 27-degree day and it's just hot and we're sitting there and we had by far the biggest crowd, audience, and line. We had people that had lined up to get stuff signed for like three hours. That's how long our line was. So seeing that, looking up pit lane and seeing that you know, some other some other guys had actually packed their tables up and left because there was no one waiting, <laughs> and and we were still there three or four hours later. So that stuff's really cool to see, and the amount of people and photos and stuff I got over that weekend was just. I would hate to think. I would hate to Little think girl? how many. Yeah, families and just even, you know, young go-carters. And I had a lot of, like, full circle moments. So families who I, you know, grew up with at a racetrack and, you know, their kids didn't race go-karts anymore and they all moved on. But they all came to Bathurst to, you know, see me at Bathurst. And so I had a lot of... I call it full circle moments because you know they, it's everything's back comes back in a circle yeah. sort of thing. So I did have a lot of those moments. Um, a lot of kids who you know had brothers and sisters who used to race against me in go karts who would come and say hello and stuff like that. So lots yeah. of lots of good stuff. The, the the bad stuff in person and at race is generally pretty minor.
0: Um, how did you end up going? So because you you did two years at Bathurst mm-hmm. with Simona, is that right? The first year you guys had an incident and you had a crash. Yeah. Second year you finished. So talk me through those two different experiences and how did you react and how did you deal with that first experience?
2: Yeah, so the first year, really everything was sort of – everything was great considering how big the weekend was. And a lot of people probably don't understand, you're not just there on track on the Thursday. It's like you're getting Mm. there on the Tuesday. You're doing all of these things. Mm. You're doing track walks. Like I think I was averaging about 30,000 steps a day is what I was averaging over basically a week, just under a week, five days. Um, yeah. and, and I was spending an hour or so in the car each time. Yeah. So when I wasn't walking, I was still being active. So they're just yeah. ginormous weekends. And the amount of live TV and press coverages and stuff, so everything went so smoothly. In regards- Especially you
0: girls, in particular, yeah. Like you had extra attention, extra press commitments. I can yeah. Imagine. So just to be able yeah. to
2: do all those commitments, get on all the TVs, get in the newspaper, and just do everything and accomplish—you know—being at Bathurst, doing laps, and doing everything for me, I consider it a great, a great year, and obviously one of the best moments of my life. Even though wow. I crashed, I crashed into the wall, yeah. but I still drove yeah. back to pit lane. We still went out. We still finished, and we still finished. Um, we were de- declared in the race. So we, we, we got points and we actually were a declared finish.
0: Oh, you finished that first year. Yes,
2: yeah. So yeah. we did actually finish. Okay. So um, yeah. so we scored points and, and it was all legit. It was in, in in the history books, you know what I mean? So it didn't great. go down as a DNF. It didn't go down as it did not totally. start. So that was yeah. the most important thing. And the second year was by far obviously a lot better personally because I didn't crash. That was great. <laughs> um, right. we, we had a few hiccups. I think there was and this, in the first year there was a bit of rain as well. So the rain, obviously, um, yes. threw a spanner in the works because Simona had never driven in the rain before. So she mm. was obviously out when it started raining and that sort of stuffed our whole plan. And she up. was also
0: like, this is the first time of V8s. So I was there with, with you when she first hopped into a V8 for the first time and you can't underestimate like mm. <laughs> racing a vehicle for the first time in just what, like a couple of weeks beforehand, really.
2: Yeah, and then we go to Bathurst and, you know, some of her mm. last stints in there for the race after racing for six or seven hours, it's in the rain. So you know, yeah. we were lucky to just finish all of that and just tick it off and, and get it yeah. done. So we were very fortunate. And the second year, obviously, was was great and we finished 14th overall. So that's a, mm. a real achievement and we we're both relatively competitive um, and, you know, based off, you know, the year that we had before, we took what we could. And we had to change teams and change cars as well, which also mm. wasn't very easy um because there was big changes that had happened and working with mm. a completely different team is basically like starting from scratch we didn't get any of the yeah. previous data we didn't get any of the previous information we tried doing the, yeah. getting the year before so it yeah. was another big stepping stone tough. but yeah really to tough. finish to finish 14th and and to get that done second time doing it i think
0: yeah 14th yeah yeah it was, Amazing. was great yeah david reynolds in that first year i know you know what i'm gonna say <laughs> he um publicly said because i want to know what the driver's reactions to you girls was like. Um, And he famously said, called your team the pussy wagon. And I know you've laughed it off in the past, um, but it did it light a fire in you at the time. I was pretty annoyed because I remember when he just said that and I just thought of, this is a big moment for women. This is a big moment for little girls. This is a big moment for all of us who have grown up enjoying motor racing to have a female team out here. And you've just denigrated it and dismissed it and you know it was was quite degrading what he said did it light a fire in you
2: i know how dave is and i know that he never meant that with any insult or intention at like negative intention or there there was nothing nasty about it in my eyes and i really just mm-hmm. can't see him ever thinking that maybe how people portrayed it. I think if he thought about it a bit more in, de- in depth before he said he probably said should it.
0: have been smarter about that. He wouldn't have yeah. said
2: it because he d- he wouldn't have. That's not what he was trying to do. I think he was trying to be funny, and I think he probably saw it more in a a positive, like yeah, let's you know. I think he was trying to be funny and light, but supportive about the whole thing, but in his weird, quirky way. <laughs> and it just backfired. <laughs> it's a bad, bad way. <laughs> I, I do, words. I do truly think, <laughs> yeah. I do truly think if he thought about it slightly a bit more in simple in mm. day fashion, he doesn't think about much, um, very quickly, mm-hmm. but I do think if he thought about it in, in depth, just a little bit longer, I don't think he would have said it because it's definitely not, I think how, how it came across and how he meant no, it. No, it
0: came across terribly. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I didn't know about it. I was actually, I was doing interviews and obviously everything was hundred miles an hour for me that weekend. And I think it was, Gosh, yeah. it was just after qualifying or just after something. So naturally oh, so busy and I remember someone coming up from Supercast tapping me on this back of the shoulder and they've gone look after that after this meeting we need to discuss something with you so I'm like yeah okay no worries and then had the meeting that I was having and then they said look this is what's happened um you're going to need to make a public statement because we will be finding him for this statement and I've just gone oh this is the last thing I need. I think yeah, it was,
0: just I think I it
2: was the day before the big race. So it was, I think it was a Saturday. Mm. It was media mm-hmm. madness. And I'm like, this is the last thing I need before the race because obviously yep. I didn't want people to think that we had a problem with it. We had other mm. things to worry about. But Supercast mm. had decided to fine him and I got told what was going on. And I basically mm. just, they said, you know, we're doing it. It's happening. He's getting called into the tribunal. It's, it's you know, he's going to get fined and you will need to make mm. a statement. So I just – my manager and I were very political about it all and obviously I spoke to Dave after about it and the we were on the same team at the time. So, mm. yeah, it was just yep. water under the bridge. You can, you can call me whatever you want but obviously just don't do it in front of the media, in front of people who, who are going to get upset yeah. by it, especially yep. if, if it, it comes across in a way that you don't mean and, and that was it basically.
0: I just want to take a bit of a pause at the moment. Um, I just want to talk about your mum, if that's okay. Yeah. Because um, – you quite close with your mum growing up
2: growing up yeah when I was go-karting and stuff obviously a lot of time away and she had to and to be at home with my sister and stuff so she couldn't come to a lot of race meetings and Mm. a few go-kart meetings here and there and a few Porsche races um obviously as as best as she could local ones queensland raceway and stuff she did her best but obviously and had a sister Mm. my dad and i were obviously away racing all the time and yeah someone Mm. needed to be home a sister still needed to be taken to school and stuff like that so she missed out on a lot which was probably unfortunate for her because i know that she probably would have liked to attended more yeah
0: yeah can you um talk me through about the day that you found her was it on the kitchen floor
2: yeah so she had a, a brain aneurysm and it was funny how it all played out was I was actually on a bike ride so a push bike I went for a big bike ride and I actually got a flat tire so I had to change the tire over and I was running really late and I texted her and I said mum I'm running super super late I've got an appointment in half an hour I'm just about home can you please make me some lunch so she's she's thanks (laughs) mum And so she's made me some lunch and I got home and my mum being a typical mum, she's not very messy. She, she made me a sandwich. Normally she'd pack mm. everything up. The sandwich is either going to be wrapped in cling wrap or in a container ready for me to take, mm-hmm. right? And I get there and the sandwich and there's lettuce everywhere and there's mess everywhere and there's, the sandwich isn't made. And I'm like, what's going on here? And then mm. I realised that my cat was meowing and making all these weird noise and then I followed the cat and, yeah, she was lying face down on the floor outside of the laundry, which is next to the kitchen, and yeah, didn't think anything of it. Walked outside, and I was like, "Mum, what are you doing? Like, is the sandwich done? Like, what's got? Why are you laying down? Like, what's going wow. on?" Not thinking wow. anything of it, and then realizing mm. that obviously she wasn't wasn't responding to me, and she was face down again. Just didn't think anything of it, and then once I rolled her over, I I realized something was going on. She had fallen down, um, so she had had fainted or passed out standing up. Mm. So she had fallen down face first. So when I turned her over, she was blood everywhere, and it was coming out of her every everywhere nose mouth Mm. eyes everything um so she had broken her nose her cheeks her chin her eye sockets Mm. and stuff from falling face Mm. first on the ground so Mm. I thought that was the only issue that was wrong with her um obviously I'm like okay she's just passed out and she's just busted her face up and then Mm. I had obviously just just come home just as this has happened and then within moments of me rolling her over she had started to to see have seizures and go into cardiac Mm. arrest so yeah I was on the phone to triple zero and Basically, if I wasn't there, she would have died. So, yeah, it was all about timing. If I had just been, you know, five minutes later, if my tyre wasn't punctured and I didn't have to replace my tyre on that bike ride, it was all a... A massive timing thing her doing a few weird things if you know if the sandwich was was ready i was in a rush i probably would have just picked the sandwich up and turned around and walked out as as silly as that sounds as silly as that sounds Mm. a a spoiled little you know young girl living at home getting mum to (laughs) make her lunch but you know if the sandwich was wrapped up and and i probably would have just picked it up and turned around and walked out and and not thought Mm. anything of it but because i texted her asking her can you make me some lunch and and needs to be ready i need to grab it and go and she said yes no worries the fact that it wasn't Mm. ready and when you look into all of the small little things and just think about the timing and everything and, yeah, if, if I wasn't there at the time when I, the ambulance and everything came, naturally yeah. afterwards because it was quite a traumatic thing, I was getting counselling in the hospital and, yeah, they yeah. basically said it was this This would have happened about a minute or two before you got home and a minute or two later she would have passed away if you weren't there. So,
0: Oh, Renee, yeah. wow. Yeah. This is a big deal. Like this is quite a traumatic mm. incident. You did CPR, am I right, on her with the help of triple zero? Yeah, so I
2: had to keep her airways open because she was like having a seizure. So I had to make sure that she wasn't going to swallow her tongue and she was vomiting at the time. So I had to actually physically go in and remove anything that could block her airway. And yeah, yeah, at this time she was in in what they were telling me at the time was like cardiac arrest. So I just had to um, make sure that she was still breathing, clear airways, and um, yeah, just make sure if she, if she needed to, I had to roll her on her side. And then when she wasn't vomiting, I had to roll her back over and keep doing CPR. So yeah, it was all Were on a phone Calm under
0: pressure. This is a lot. Like no, calm. I wasn't. No? calm, no. And you talk about it so matter-of-factly. <laughs> this happened. This happened. This happened. But mm-hmm. I mean, what impact did that whole experience have on you? That's.
2: It was, it was weird because I actually went to TAFE and I made friends with a girl who was epileptic and she one day, I didn't know she was epileptic, and she one day came up mm. to me and she grabbed my hand and she's like, Renee, I'm about to have a seizure. I need you to lay me down and I need your help right now. So I'm like, oh, I don't mm. know what to do. And before she fell mm. into the seizure, she was telling me all these things to do and then she had her seizure, which wasn't anywhere near as bad as what I thought it was going to be. Um, mm. And, yeah, when she woke up, we had a big, big chat about um, seizures and her being epileptic and how she was embarrassed by it and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And and one thing that she told me, she's like, I would much rather be epileptic and having fits because I can have medication to help me and I can have things to help me. And she said, what's really scary is when people have seizures and have fits when they're not epileptic. Mm -hmm. And so right in that moment when my mum was having a seizure, I, I knew to roll her over on her side because Mm. of my friend in TAFE, Georgia. Mm. And so naturally I rolled her straight over, I called triple zero. And the first thing that ran through my mind was I remembered her telling me how dangerous it is for someone to have a seizure, especially Mm. if they don't have any underlying issues like epilepsy to be giving them Mm. a seizure. So I just remember in that moment, I was just like, this is really, really, really bad. And it just freaked me out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Did you see, you talked to a counselor at at hospital afterwards, did you have to go see anyone afterwards or have any kind of PTSD about this experience?
2: No, it was, it was weird because obviously once my mum, I got to see her before I, she went in to have brain surgery. So before she went in, she actually got a bit of her brain removed and all the blood drained out of her, her brain mm. and her skull. Um, and so when she was just going in, when she left, so when she was having her seizures and stuff, obviously I had just basically seen her at the brink of death um Mm. and and that was quite traumatic and it was weird because when I went in to see her she was obviously out of it completely her face Mm. was black and blue swollen almost unrecognizable but it was almost just like when she before I saw her go into surgery it was having that moment of seeing that she actually looked better than when I saw her Mm. before I was just like at, at peace I was sort of like okay I didn't really want my last memory to be of my mum yeah. how she was at home when before she got yeah. taken away with the ambulance so to for me to see her at the hospital I was like regardless of the outcome I'm glad I had that moment because it was mm. I wasn't going to be left with my last ever moments and thoughts of her being that horrible situation at mm. home on the floor in the laundry um yeah so for me it was just this weird like oh I don't don't have to worry about anything that happens now. I've seen her. I know that she's okay and anything that happens from here is just sort of like fate and whatever's meant to be is meant to be. So for me that was it but obviously for my dad and my sister who – Know, yeah. left left the home that morning and mum was fine mm. and all of a sudden um, my sister was working and her phone was obviously turned off because she worked at a bar and she wasn't on her phone so she worked for like another four hours before oh, she gosh. turned her phone back on
1: obviously mm. I
2: couldn't drive to her work it was about 25 minutes away because I've got mum here and I'm going to go mm. to the hospital with her and dad was still 20 minutes from home and Then it was probably a lot more traumatic because my sister left in the morning to go to work, thought she was coming home, mum was going to cook dinner and all of a sudden mum's not home. You answer your phone from work and you've got to come to the hospital ASAP to say goodbye to your mum potentially. So it was very different situations for all of us. But mine coincidentally, just to have that moment when I saw her leave from home to go to the hospital was almost like a bit of clarity for me that everything will be okay and even if it's not, I had that moment to see her at her last sort of normal stage Mm. before obviously the brain surgery and and the potential outcomes of of that.
0: She did survive though? Yeah,
2: she did survive, yes, but she is mentally and physically disabled. So she's got about Mm. the mental capacity of, they say, about two to three. So she can speak but she can't really write. Um, she's obviously, she doesn't move around. She's she's bedridden, so she's, um, she's not paralysed as such. Her left mm. side is severely weakened. Um, but we unfortunately just couldn't afford to to do the physio and to do the ongoing rehab. My, my dad couldn't afford it at the time. And, yeah, mm. it was we had to make the decision to put her in a home. So And now it's obviously mm. too too far gone where she's too weak. She hasn't walked for, for so many years. It's unfortunately not something that we'll be able to, to save from now on and get her back up and walking ever again.
0: Do you miss your mum? In uh, how she was pretty.
2: yeah I, I do think yeah, about it all awesome. the time and especially now my sister's ha- has had a baby and you know all of mm. our lives are you know moving on naturally as mm. you would expect and I do think about all the time the stuff that I've achieved and accomplished how she would handle the situations and and where I would be and what she'd be doing based off where I am and things that we could do mm. together and yeah, I think about it all the time, but it's it's really hard because it's. You know, I try not to think about it as well and, mm. and get too deep into thought. I try to think about, you know, I wonder what, I wonder what Mum would think about, you know, if, if I was to tell yeah. her living in this house. Like I reckon she'd be over every day, and you know, I yeah. think about those sorts yeah. of things, but I try not to miss or reminisce too much on on anything else Mm. as horrible as it sounds and some people cope with it in different ways but my sister and I are very similar which is good is that we both sort of we have moments where we sort of laugh and joke and be like oh god imagine if mum knew that or you know little things like that (laughs) um where we joke and laugh and giggle and because we know what she'd be like or maybe what she'd Mm. say and and whatever else but as for really sitting down and, and, and thinking too much about stuff into detail I really try to avoid it as best I can it was it was definitely tough we we took my sister's new son to go see her the other week and so that was obviously Mm. quite a a tough situation um Mm. obviously her not really ever understanding that she's got a grandson but yeah she she can still see the baby and holds the baby but she'll never be able to draw the conclusions that that's her you know she's a grandmum now and
0: you have a tattoo of your mum don't you is that yeah, not of your mom, but one that represents one of your tattoos. Yeah, so she represents ha- your mom. Yeah, so
2: her favorite flower was an orchid. So I got an orchid right between on my sternum, between in, mm-hmm. in between my, my, on my breastbone, between my boobs, um, underneath, and it's mm-hmm. just to represent her, close to the heart. Obviously, couldn't get it quite on my heart, um, but I got it as close <laughs> as I could. So yeah, so it's just an orchid it was her favorite flower. So I got an orchid there for her, and then my Beautiful. sister also got an orchid on her leg as well.
0: I think it made you more resilient as well didn't it you always from the moment I met you had this inner strength in you this resilience that you know you could see from the first moment that you met do you put that down you know to your mom and and that incident and you know having to deal with a lot early on
2: yeah I think just naturally everything in my life leading up to those moments anyway I think I've always been put in tough situations like all the go-karting and all the stuff that I've been to and then I'm faced with a situation like that I definitely feel like I'm glad it was me too because you know if it was my sister she would have probably never recovered from it that would have been the most traumatic mm. thing that ever happened to her life and probably altered her life completely to be honest mm. she's just not she's we're just not the same not not that she's not mm. strong because we're, we're strong in different ways but something like that would have probably altered her life completely um yeah and same with my dad to be honest so yeah, I'm glad it was me because I've, I've, I've sort of always had that, that inner strength and it was sort of just one of those things where I, when it was happening I was just sort of tunnel vision and just was freaking mm. out, but I just knew that something was wrong and I had to had to just be there and, and tough it out. Mm. There was nothing I could do.
0: So you went Porsche Carrera Cup, Dunlop Series, Bathurst twice, you're Renee Gracie. Why did you quit V8s in the end or the supercars in the end? <sighs>
2: it's a long-winded question sometimes it's all, it can be a very long answer depending on on how much you know but in in the the most basic terms I lost my passion for it um, mm-hmm. it was something that the racing became a very small percentage of what I was doing the mm-hmm. racing was no longer the main focus it was all about me how I looked interviews it was the sponsors that I had, even though they were amazing, it was, you know, a fan posted a photo of me on Facebook and I ran into them at a BP instead of a Caltex and they posted mm. online and then all of a sudden I'm getting a phone call from Caltex going, why did you let? Why are you taking a photo with a fan at a BP? How come you're not at a Caltex fueling yeah. up? And it's Gosh. all yeah. these little things where it's just like, well, I'm sorry that I had to stop and pull over and go to the toilet okay, and I'm driving, mm. you know, I'm just driving yeah. and I needed to pee and I wanted a water bottle, like I just wanted something yeah. to eat. I'm sorry, you know, yeah. and it's having to explain that and then going, well, it's not good enough and you've got Caltex cards and you should be stopping at Caltexes and why would you have to take a photo with signage in the back and little things like that mm. just constantly, constantly, mm. even just to the point where people, you know, were saying things on social media. People would see me in public and they would take photos and share them and I wasn't wearing the correct uniform or I was wearing a shirt that, you know, was just not fitting or Mm. just crazy, crazy stuff that you would never even Mm. imagine. It just became so draining and I got so over it. I lost my passion for it. It wasn't about the racing anymore. It wasn't about the racing anymore. People were so concerned on me, I was a train I felt like a transaction towards the end. I felt like people were just mm. dealing with me because they obviously wanted to to make something from me, which is totally fine because I benefited mm. from it too. But it got to the mm. point where I felt like it just wasn't benefiting anymore, and it was just mm. really. It was. It was honestly at one stage it was the vein of my existence. I would wake up in the morning and I would just be like, "What today? What is going right. to happen today? Is going to be hate? It's going to be someone telling me to go kill myself? Is it going to be someone you know who I I'm, who I'm upset or have I posted a photo or?" Some fan mm. abusing me, and I was just, "What's what's going to happen today that mm. I have to deal with, which it shouldn't even be something that I'm dealing with." Yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. so yeah. I just got over it, and then obviously all the bullying, the trolling. I was looking at going into supercars at the time, so there was obviously lots of people talking, lots of people saying things. I was just mm. dealing with, you know, misogynistic men twenty four seven, just mm. super competitive environment. Plus, all the fans, the trolls, sponsors, just every single thing I dealt mm. with towards the end was just, it just wasn't worth it for me anymore.
0: And financially, like you talk about mm-hmm. being a transaction, but oh, one of the things that a lot of people find astounding is that you didn't make that much money from racing.
2: No, I made no money. So I still had a job on the side. I did driver training and stuff on the side. as a bit of pocket money. But my program, I was one of the only fully sponsored drivers. So a lot of drivers obviously have, you know, lucky enough to have wealthy parents or uncles or aunties or, Mm. you know, acquire money, you know, I would say easily, but no money is easy to acquire. But they would have means to to access large amounts of money Mm. for family businesses and whatever it may be, generally parents or or relatives. Mm. And um, I did not have that, unfortunately. So... My seasons were fully sponsored, so the four or five hundred thousand dollars sponsorships. Every single cent of that money generally went back into everything that I did. It meant I could get an extra Mm. spare tire, I could do an extra test day, Um, I could pay for, you know, somebody to to do my personal training or to write me up a nutrition program and stuff like that, no cent was ever put back to me. But I chose to do that because obviously sure. I had a goal of, of eventually hopefully trying to, to make it full-time and to get paid. So it was a sacrifice that I took. Mm. Um, so, yeah, all of that stuff that I was dealing with on a daily basis, that's sort of what I said with the, I felt like a transaction which was totally fine because it was benefiting me. But when it stopped to benefit me and it was really taking a toll on my mental just space and, and my life, mm. I was just knew that I was over it and I needed to get out.
0: How did OnlyFans come in? How did you come across OnlyFans? Because you came into it quite early, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I was lucky enough um, to sort of get involved right before it sort of boomed in the whole COVID saga. Mm. So I was, I was very good on timing for that one. I um, like <laughs> to say that I did planned it knew what I was doing, but I absolutely did not. Um <laughs> It was probably a year or so after I had been out of racing, um, my fan base had actually started to grow and people Mm. were still following me, people were still loving me and I was still getting a lot of interest. Are you going to get back into racing? And Mm. lots of interest from fans. And after a year or two, I really started to want to know how I could give back to my fans and I remember I'd speak to my dad about it what can I do how can I get back into racing Mm. what can I race and we would speak about it forever because I had such loyal fans and they could normally come and see me at a race meeting they could Mm. normally come see me at a track day they could normally come and get a t-shirt signed and and whatever else and I had been a year or two without doing that and I was like how can I give back to these people who are so loyal and all these people who are still supporting me even though I'm not racing Mm. anything Um, and I got a lot of interest when OnlyFans started to become popular. Where everybody kept telling me you should start OnlyFans, you should start an OnlyFans, you should start something for you know all your OG fans and your your VIP fans mm. and people who have you supported you know you for your whole life and you should do this, do mm. that, and so you know naturally I was like, what is this OnlyFans stuff and the intention was absolutely never to do what I'm doing now. It was more just to have a paid private sort of version of my Instagram to have, you know, b- mm. bikini pics and to do lives and to do more Q&As and have it but just for my VIP fans and my OG fans, which I knew I had a mm. lot of, and just have something to service them and to make them happy. It was There was never meant to be any nudity. That was never the plan in the beginning at all. Mm. It was all just going to be slightly sexier, more candid, renee basically that i was mm. obviously too scared to show on social media because i had been molded in a way to how to present myself on social media for mm. so long when i was racing um it was basically just to some other platform to express myself and people were paying to see it and i could chat one-on-one and just give something back to the og fans that i knew i had and that was the original tension intention mm. of my only fans
0: what did it allow you to do financially only fans
2: Everything, (laughs) everything I ever dreamed of. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I everything it was. I have obviously even right now. I have full financial freedom. Um, My number one of my goals have always been. Even when I was racing, I've always been into property. I've studied real estate, and I've always had a passion for. For real estate, I'm a quite creative person. Um, I'm a Capricorn, so I'm very like to keep myself busy and do projects and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So <laughs> I've always loved to build and design. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to draw up like horse stables and I used to draw up like sheds of where I would store my go karts and stuff like that. Um, yeah, okay. So I've always had a passion for it. So one of my ultimate goals was whenever I you know, fell into money or started making mm-hmm. money, was to buy a house. That was the first thing I ever did. Within the first couple of months of having my OnlyFans, um, mm-hmm. I did have a job, obviously on the side as well where I was saving big time to try and earn a house mm-hmm. uh buy mm-hmm. a house and I was earning okay money but it was going to take me probably five years instead of three months thanks to our mm-hmm. event um and yeah the second I got the opportunity I went out and, and bought my first house and that was like my ultimate ultimate goal was to be a property owner and, and I knew that that could propel me into buying more property regardless of just having one I knew that mm-hmm. I would be able to to figure the rest out having no idea obviously the potential earnings of my page and how my page was going to, was going to blow up and obviously yeah, how successful yeah. I was going to be from there. Um, I didn't care about that at the time. It was just I had to buy that house and that was a real yeah. bucket list moment for me. And then I paid my car loan off. I um, had finance on my Ford Mustang that I had at the time and being mm. able to pay that off was like this two like wall moments in my life mm. that I never thought I'd be able to do and I did it within the first not even six months, I'd say three months of, of being on OnlyFans. Yeah.
0: <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I know. Right? Absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, how did your dad and, um, and family and friends, did they support you on it? Were there any that you were surprised that didn't uh, luckily, No, lose any?
2: No, <laughs> I think I've been lucky because I'm always, like I said, uh, black sheep, I'm always doing weird and wonderful things. I'm always, mm-hmm. you know, I'm um, uh, I have a track record of just not being inside the box, right? I've cars. It's not very normal of me. And, you know, being <laughs> being on OnlyFans, I feel like everyone was sort of like, oh, what's next with you? You know what I mean? Everyone was sort of just yeah. like, of course you're up to something, Renee. Um, so, yeah, I, obviously when I started my OnlyFans page, the first, within the first like 24 hours, I had made that like $24,000 US. Um, mm. And my first. How long? In the first day, 24 hours, Yeah.
0: 24 hours. Yeah. 24000 US. Yeah,
2: yeah. First day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So naturally I was like went down to my dad and, and how OnlyFans works is that when you get paid, so if you someone was to subscribe today, it actually takes seven days before that money goes into your wallet and then you can withdraw sure. it. So the money was sitting there pending. So I mm. was just like, is this even real? Like am I even going to get all this money? Mm. Am I being scammed? Like I don't know what's, yes. what's going on. So. <laughs> I was gonna originally going to wait, but then I thought I'm going to go down to Dad in the morning and tell him. I think it was about mm. 19,000 when I went to bed and it was about 24 mm. when I woke up in the morning. So I Hello. went, yeah, and so I was like.
0: Five grand for sleeping. yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and so I said I've got to go down and tell Dad, you know, when he's in his office, I'll try and get him in the morning when he's normally in a good mood and I've got to tell him what's going on. And so, yeah, I went down and I told him and I said I've started this thing. It's called OnlyFans. I had absolutely no idea. It was going to do what it's done and mm. I've got $24,000 pending. And he's like, mm. what does that mean? And I said, I don't really know, but I think in a week's time this will go into my bank account.
1: Mm. And he's
2: just like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I'm pretty sure this $24,000 is going to go into my bank account. Mm. And he's like, well, what's it at now? And I'm like, oh, like it just keeps going up. It's at twenty nine now. And he's just like, oh, my God. He's like, okay. He's like, don't do anything. He's like, "What?" He's like, "What we're going to do?" He's like, "In a week's time, see if this can go into your bank account." So we waited, mm. and um, it was sitting there. Sure enough, by this time, I had, you know, my first—I had waited a week, and I obviously, I started at the end of the month, so naturally, that month finished anyway. So I finished, yeah. I finished my that month, and because um, it was a couple of days later, and so my November finished, and I just said to Dad, "I was like, well, this is what I've made this month according to OnlyFans, and this is how much is still pending, and this is how much I have in my bank account." And dad said, well, just put a $1,000 in and see if it's there. So I put a $1,000 in and three days later it was in my bank account. And then my dad was like, oh, my God. He's like, okay. So he's like, how much is in there? And I'm like, it worked out to be $30,000, $40,000 or something crazy. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just said to him, I was like, this is my money. Like, this is this is it. So I said, mm-hmm. this is happening. And I said, and, and I'm like I'm a couple of days into December. And I was like, I'm already at $20,000 again. Yeah.
1: And so I
2: think just the volume of money and how quick it came when we discovered it came real it quickly mm. went from he didn't even care about what the hell OnlyFans was it was mm. like we got to figure out what we're going to do with all this money Renee because this sure. is insane so we got to set things up I need to speak to your accountant we need to start figuring things out ASAP yeah, so yeah it was very quick from no questions were asked about fans anymore. It was quickly propelled into you need to set yourself up real quick and probably mm. otherwise you're going to be get yourself in a lot of trouble. So, mm. again, it happened so quickly, so fast. We didn't really have time to think. We just sort of had to act on it as quickly as we could.
0: In the past, society has heaped a lot of shame on women for being sexual and for flaunting that sexuality. Did you feel that as well from outside, people that don't understand at all. Because the thing is, and to be honest, like at first I was a little bit challenged because I've known you for so long. I was a bit challenged at first with all these images, but I was kind of conditioned in an era when women in sport in particular, the only way they could get on the front page of a paper was if they were in some kind of raunchy, if they were sexualized in some kind of way. That was the only way women in sport or female athletes could get any coverage if they were sexualized. So then when I started seeing like yourself and young athletes, then, you know, being sexual themselves, I got a little confused at first and I was quite challenged because I adore you, I've known you for so long. And I was like, why are we doing what they did to us before? But I really came to the conclusion and, and had to think about it quite deeply. I thought, well, no, like you're in charge here. You're in charge of your profile. You're in charge of, of how you're portrayed. You have total control and I came to realize there's a difference between being sexual which is quite empowering and being sexualized when you don't have a choice
2: mm. yeah totally agree so for me the, the intention for my only fans was never to obviously be like that sure it was to show a little bit more and to actually upload bikini pics because I was way too scared to do that on my Instagram and, and mm. all that sort of stuff but the intention was never to to be overly sexual at all
1: hey it's me, Sam. So from here, my conversation with Renee takes a really interesting path as we discuss the sexualization of women in sport and also how Renee's career enabled her to feel comfortable in her own skin and celebrate her body in a way she never would have otherwise. Renee then addressed issues facing younger people in a world where sharing nude pictures and videos has become extremely problematic. That conversation... I'm holding over until next week for a very special episode of On Her Mind. Now, let's get back to this conversation and where Renee's career goes from here. Enjoy. What about a
0: comeback in motor racing? You've talked about that before.
2: Yeah, so it's something that I'm still looking at. I'm still thinking. I'm still trying. I'm still figuring out what I can do. I've obviously had lots of people message me over the years since I've Put out sort of a little inquiry about a year and a half ago, two years ago now. Um, it's just for me, my biggest thing is when I left racing, obviously I lost my passion for it. I obviously will mm. still always have a deep love for it. I dedicated you know a quarter of half my life to it basically from 13 mm. to 23. So I dedicated so many years to it where it was all I lived and breathed and thought about. It was just a hundred percent of my life at, at those 10 years was motorsport so I feel Mm. like I always will have a passion for it but I want to do something that actually reignites that passion I don't want it to be Mm. stressful I don't want it to be obviously it's going to be media frenzy and it'll be crazy in a circus no matter what I do but I want to have the passion there and I want to get back into racing and feel that feeling I felt, you know, in my first two years of course when it was actually enjoyable, and before mm-hmm. everything went crazy. That's how I want to feel again. I want to. I want to be competitive. I want to have that like that fire burning, the obsession and the goal to do well. And if I can't get that and I can't replicate that, I'm, I just can't do it for my own mental sanity. And mm-hmm. and obviously, naturally, going back into it now with, with the profile that I have, you know. I was the only Mm -hmm. female and I was a young girl back then, which obviously generated a lot of interest. But to go back in it again now, with everything that's happened and and who I am now, 10 years later, um, it would really need to be something that I'm in the utmost control of to make sure that I have a good time, as crazy as that sounds. Not a lot of people probably go racing to have a good time, but I don't need to go racing because I've obviously got my other sources of income. But it would just need to be a fun, enjoyable event and something that Mm. just would reignite my passion and love for motorsport and hopefully not make me go this is why I left it in the first place yeah (laughs) you know what I mean so that's important for me
0: you talked about funding your own team would that be a possibility or
2: yeah so I looked into it the hardest thing obviously with doing it myself is people can just literally say no and Mm. it's, it's something that I i Figured out pretty quickly, to be honest, um, when I first started looking about a year ago. Um,
0: Who would say no? Anyone.
2: Supercars, everyone that I sort of fished around with, um, even teams, um, you know, hey, have you got a car for me to run? Yeah, we've got a car but we we can't run you. Sorry, our sponsors won't let us and they want to be associated with someone who's, you know, on OnlyFans and stuff like that. So I I learnt that pretty quickly. Mm. So I feel like it's something that I… Do they still
0: have grid girls at
2: uh, supercars? I think they're done now. Great. I think they okay. do,
0: but like, there's some there's, there's hypocrisy there. Yeah, that's okay. I
2: think I think they do have some depending on the race, but I really think they just wear a bit boring clothes. Like they have them on the, the uh, podiums and stuff like that, but they're wearing like a t-shirt and pants. <laughs> mm.
0: So they're dressed yeah. nicely. Um,
2: they're yeah. not in bikinis anymore.
0: Um, yeah. Does that frustrate you though? Because there's so much more to Renee Gracie than OnlyFans. To be honest.
2: Yeah, I think I
0: know that, and I think that's what I wanted to show in this podcast.
2: I think it is. It
0: frustrating for you to say there's so much more to mean than this, but and also what's wrong with this?
2: Yeah, and I think it's it's one thing where I'm in a position that I do think whoever says yes will really understand the opportunity they'll understand the potential in me and they'll see bigger picture and they'll do what most people do when they meet me and they get to know me is actually look past OnlyFans and realise that that's just such a small percentage of, of who I am mm. and what I do and my story. My story is a majority mm. and I've only done OnlyFans for three years. Like it's not a big percentage yeah. of my life. So yeah. um, for, for me I think the person who says yes will be, all in and it'll be an amazing experience and opportunity whatever it may be if I can manage to pull something off um because there'll be lots of hurdles that I have to overcome (laughs) and and I feel like if if that's the case it'll be an amazing experience and that's why I think obviously if I can tick all those boxes I think it will be great Um, Hmm. and I do think there is someone out there who can see past it it's just making all the stars align and mm. crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's and making it work, which unfortunately is a bigger process than just a, a boyer who wants to go racing can just go, hey, Dad, give me 100 grand. I want to go race a car. Mm. It's not that easy for me, unfortunately. And I tried to do that and go forward and go, well, I'll put up some money and people were just like, well, we're not going to run, you know, Renee Gracie Racing and we're not going to have, you know, what are you going to have on the side, like condom sponsors and oh, stuff God. like that. So, yeah. yeah, it's I think if I had legitimate so more, sponsors Renee. and legitimate teams Mm. and legitimate people behind me I think it's Mm. it will become possible backing myself I think is pointless because people can just say no where it's if they're saying no to a team owner who has legitimate cars and legitimate teams and who's had you know backing in the sport for years and they're supporting me people might change their mind
0: final question which I ask everyone Mm -hmm. if you could go back and talk to a younger Renee Gracie if you could talk to that little 13 year old Renee Gracie who's about to enter go-karts and her life and career is really about to start, what would you go back and give her with all the knowledge and experience that you've had now? What would you go back and tell that little 13-year-old Renee?
2: I have been asked this before, and weirdly enough I reflect on this stuff just in my own time, sometimes late at night in bed when I can't sleep and stuff like that. Um, Mm. And the main thing that I always think about is how glad I am that I just didn't really listen to a lot of people and did what I wanted to do anyway. And so I would probably go back and reiterate that and really make sure that that is Mm. embedded in my brain. Do not listen to anybody else. If you want to go do something and if you want to do it and someone tells you to do otherwise, don't let them coerce you, change your opinion or change your mind. If you've got the passion, the drive and the absolute utmost determination to do whatever it is you're going to do, and someone tells you no, you just do it anyway because mm. <laughs> there yeah. was definitely moments in my life where I did whatever I wanted to do but there were definitely moments towards the end of my racing career and stuff where I wasn't doing what I felt was right and I think that mm. that was another reason that led to losing my passion in motorsport and and things falling apart because I wasn't mm. telling people, no, I'm not doing this media call, no, I don't want to do that today, I want to do this, I need to do this mm. Um, mm. and I feel like when, when those moments in time sort of flash through my mind, I wish that I just did what I wanted to do and mm. I feel like doing what I wanted to do got me to where I was and mm. then, not doing what I wanted to do also led to sort of the ending and the, the finishing of everything. So that's definitely one of the, the mm. things that I think about quite often is I I know myself best and I, I'll do what I want to do.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, you say you're the black sheep of the family, but I doubt that and I don't think that's the case at all. Renee, uh, you've been a champion of your family and you've, um, yeah, you've broken through a lot of barriers I think in in your career and, there's a lot more to Renee Gracie than than OnlyFans, but geez, OnlyFans has has done a lot for you as well. And, um, yeah, I just think you should be really proud of how far you've come and everything you've achieved. And I've really enjoyed being along for the journey from those early days, you know, doing those stories on the Porsche Carrera Cup to, to seeing where you are now. Um, yeah, it's been great. So thank you, Renee, and thank you for agreeing and coming on On Her Game and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank
2: you for having me.
1: On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer Lindsay Green, audio producer Nikki Sitch, executive producer Jennifer Goggin.